Welcome to The Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. So, the job of the law is done. We've established over and over that um, the law, the old covenant and the new covenant don't, don't exist concurrently. Right? One retired the other. Very important. The Old Testament is not complementing the New Testament. The Old Testament ushered in the new. Right? Ushered in the new. The new retired the old. Cancelled the old. What then is left to do with the Old Testament? Why do we still have it in the Bible? That's a valid question. It's a silly question. Why then do we still have the Old Testament? What do we do with it? First Timothy 1 and 8. First Timothy 1 8. But you know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We've established what using the law lawfully meant, right? Romans 15 and 4. We looked at that. We started to look at that last Sunday. Romans 15 and 4. Romans 15, 4. For whatever things were written before, before. Were written for our learning. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning. That we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. The scriptures were written before, whatever was written before, was written for our learning. That's important. And then he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture, not some scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or, if it made it into the scriptures, God inspired it. So again, we must be careful of that strand of thought, of that theological um, underpinning that suggests that there are certain things that are in the scripture that um, are not supposed to be there. Yeah? Very important. I said something last week that I'll, I'll buttress again this week. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All. Say all. all. And all scripture is profitable for doctrine. All. Doctrine, didascalia, instruction in righteousness. Which is to say, understanding the message of the gospel of the grace of God. That is doctrine. Doctrine is singular. It's not doctrines. Does that make sense? Doctrine. So the goal of all doctrine is Christ revealed. The believer in him discovered. That's doctrine. Understanding God as in Christ. That's doctrine. 
Make sense? Everything else is dogma. From which you get the word dogmatic viewpoints. Our understanding, our, our leanings, right? Our proclivities, our preferences. But doctrine is singular. It is the revelation of Christ in the believer and the discovery of the believer in Christ. That's doctrine. Make sense? And Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is profitable for doctrine. All scripture. is profitable for reproof. Reproof in the Greek is not even suggesting like you are wrong and it chastises you. It suggests direction and guardians or straightening. Does that make sense? And all scripture is profitable for reproof. Not some scripture. <laughs> all scripture. Really, when we say God does not remember your sin, it doesn't mean God does not remember. It means God does not consider your sin. Does, does that make sense? So selective amnesia is not that you, 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 did, you did something and God does not recall it. Uh, that's not what it means. If that were the case, then he would not be able to have the boast of being all-knowing. So he can't be all-knowing if he doesn't know what you did. But he says, your ways are ever before me. That means there's nothing you do right or wrong that he's not aware of. But it's not everything you do right or wrong that he considers. Make sense? And so you must learn to differentiate when you're being pulled up from a reference point and when you are being guilt tripped by virtue of something you did wrong. Anyway, we should have that struggle a lot. And why are you reminding me? Why are you reminding me? It's not past. It's past, but it doesn't mean that it's learning virtue is missing. Something's past, yes. But it can have value for learning. It can have value for reproof. Make sense? That's important. Next word. Bring back up 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3.16. Profitable for doctrine, all scripture. Profitable for reproof. And then it's profitable for correction. Profitable for instruction in righteousness that the man of God, verse 17, that the man of God, who is the man of God here? Yeah, you're the man of God. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. Old King James, I believe, will say thoroughly furnished for every good work. What is able to furnish you for every good work? All scripture. So if you cancel out certain portions of scripture, you most likely jeopardize your furnishing. Because it's all scripture that can thoroughly furnish you. For every good work. 
That's important to bear in mind. Make sense? Uh, this begins to sound confusing. You've just told us that the Old Testament is past. You've just told us that it's fulfilled in Christ. You've just told us that it faded away. So then what are we doing with the Old Testament? How should we engage with it? That's a million dollar question, right? Let me give you examples. The Old Testament should be considered as foundation for doctrine. We just said all scripture is profitable for doctrine. Right? So the Old Testament should be considered as foundation for doctrine. Foundation. This is where all the scriptures we have considered start to come together for some of you. In Luke 24, Jesus is having this walk with his, well, he happens upon these two disciples. One of them is named, the other is not named. Some people argue is the man and his wife. Cleopas is his name in Luke 24. Maybe an associate or maybe his wife, but then they were numbered as some of the, some of the disciples. And you know Jesus did not have 12 disciples. Jesus had 12 apostles. In Luke chapter 6, after he had prayed all night, he gathered his disciples and from among them chose 12 to be apostles. Luke chapter 6, I said, from verse 12. Actually, start from verse 1. Luke 6 and 1. I'll skip a few verses. Now, it happened on the second Sabbath after the first. These are things that are just there in Scripture. And misunderstanding these things is why you are arguing Jesus died on Friday and rose on Sunday. And to today, you cannot explain how Friday to Sunday makes three days and three nights. And you are a Christian. If I were an unbeliever and you met me on the road, I would steal your salvation with your eyes open. Because how is Friday to Sunday three days and three nights? Oh, Christian. Has anybody ever think come? Who has actually ever thought about it? Friday, 3 p.m., he gave up the ghost. Evening and the morning, first day. Scripture taught us how to count a day from Genesis 1, and the evening and the morning was the first day. So, evening and morning, first day. Friday into Saturday, day one. Day two would have been 3 p.m. Saturday to 3 p.m. Sunday would be day two. Day two. That means by the time he rose on Sunday, it was like day one and a half. By the time he rose, there had only been two nights and one day. And it's the night and the morning that makes a day. Not day and night. Evening and the, put it back and let them see. On creation. And the evening and the. So go and check Jewish culture. When does Sabbath start? At sunset. Sabbath is sunset to sunset. Evening and morning. So Friday to Saturday is one day, Saturday to Sunday is not even two days. Three days and three nights. Amalish. 
And sometimes you think these things don't matter until you meet somebody who wants to tell you, your Bible doesn't know what they're talking about. Your God is confused. He can't, he can't make up his mind about dates and times and seasons. That's when you understand how important this thing is. And then we start to fall over ourselves. How do you want to count it? Whether you count by the lunar calendar, the Jewish calendar, the Gregorian calendar, or the Chinese calendar, by whatever calendar you count it, Friday to Sunday is not three days and three nights. Until you understand the difference between the Sabbath, weekly Sabbath, and the high Sabbath. And that's the confusion. There's a weekly Sabbath, and in the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a high Sabbath. The week that the feast fell on will have its own Sabbath, different from the weekly Sabbath. Now what Sabbath was being talked about when Jesus was crucified? That's your clue. The weekly Sabbath, or the high Sabbath, or the Sabbath that accompanies the, the week of the feast of Tabernacles. Pentecost, or Unliving Bread, same, same feast. Blank Saturday. Resurrection Sunday. How? Because if you tell somebody meets you on Monday and says you are delivering three days, he means Thursday. So on the first Sabbath, the second Sabbath after the first, Luke 6. Luke 6, 1. And it happened on the second Sabbath after the first Sabbath. Within the same week. Otherwise, we will not be calling this a second Sabbath. If each week has its own Sabbath. Are you following me now? That he went through the grain fields and his disciples. That's what I'm going to tell you to see. His, his disciples. His students. His followers. Right? His disciples. Plucked the grain, heads of grain, and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, what, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, Right there, you see an example of how Jesus utilized the Old Testament. For referencing. I said the Old Testament is foundational for doctrine. That's a good example. But that's not even where I'm going. And he said to them, the Son of Man also is Lord of the Sabbath. He happened on another Sabbath also, verse 6. He entered the synagogue and taught, and a man who was there whose right hand was withered, and scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that he might find an accusation against him, but you knew their thoughts. And he goes on. So you see Jesus already doing stuff with his disciples, right? By the time he gets to verse 12 of the same chapter, it says, now, verse 12, it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Keep going. When it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them, he chose 12 whom he named from his disciples. He chose 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. That's why there were women among his disciples. 
including his mother. You're trying to worship his mother who was following Jesus. The mother you're trying to worship and pray to and tell him to pray for you followed him as a disciple. So she has no standing to pray for you. <laughs> she was a disciple. You can see in Luke chapter 10, you see him sending out disciples, 72 of them, not even 70. Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. So they are rounded up to 70, but if you look at other precise translations, it will actually say that there were 72. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. NLT. The Lord now chose. Because most times when numbers are called in scripture, they are just approximate. So be careful sometimes how you handle numbers. Yeah? yeah just it's approximate. Approximately 3,000 men were added to the church besides men and children. Approximately 5,000 men besides women and children were fed. Approximately 4,000, approximately. Make sense? Okay. Just so you know. So, the Old Testament is foundational for doctrine. Foundational. Hid in plain sight. I mentioned this disciples' digression because I picked up a story on, on Luke, in Luke 24 about the day that Jesus resurrected. And two of his disciples were doing a journey about 13 kilometers, 9 miles or so from um, Jerusalem to Emmaus, 7 miles from Jerusalem. Luke 24, 13. And so these two men are talking and having a great conversation or two, or man and woman, depending on you know, which one you believe. And Jesus happened upon them, he says. And they're talking. And Jesus says, what, is, what are you talking about? And they said to Jesus, my friend, are you a stranger in this area? Haven't you heard what's been going on? And Jesus says, what's, what's been going on? And he said, there was this Jesus of Nazareth. They start telling Jesus the biography of Jesus. There was this Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, a man attested by God, signs, wonders, miracles following. And they caught him and killed him. And today is the third day. In fact, people have even gone there and said they can't see his corpse anymore because his reason, some of us have even gone there and, and it appears that what the people saw is true. Can you imagine the amusement of Jesus? Just walking with these two guys. Hearing them tell him about him. Without revelation of who he was. Because all they had was information. And Jesus replies to them, I think he was 18. Oh, he goes on from there. They, they tell him the whole story from verse 18. And he gets to verse 25. And 25, then Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones. But he reached to call them foolish. And Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The prophets will refer to the books of the Old Testament, broadly categorized as the law. And the prophets. Personified by Moses and Elijah. 
more narrowly personified or, or categorized rather as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Most times when they break it into that third category, the Psalms, is because they do not understand that David, who authored most of the Psalms, was a prophet. And so they go the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. In fact, you know, you have this categorization of major prophets and minor prophets. And generally, theology will tell you that they're major prophets because their books are bigger. Isaiah 66 chapters is a major prophet. Hosea, 10 chapters or so. Jonah, minor prophet. That categorization should be on the basis of the revelation of Christ their writings contain. Oh, yes. How explicit their writings were of Christ, who is the central message of the scriptures. That's what makes a prophet major. And if that's what makes a prophet major, then Isaiah will come underneath David. Because David was such a messianic prophet. And don't take my word for it. Acts chapter 2. The Holy Ghost has just come upon them. Peter opens his mouth to deliver his first homily. Yeah? His first sermon. And he brings up David. Verse 22. Acts 2. Are you here? Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, that's Jesus, being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. 25 introduces David. For David says concerning him. Stop. Psalm 16. Psalm 16 verse 8 to 11. David now is speaking, right? David says, I have set the Lord always before me because at my right hand I shall not be moved. Verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my heart my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. Verse 10. Why? For you, this is David, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Somebody who is not yet dead. Here's the king of hyperboles. Sometimes you think he's just whining and nagging because David had a way of exaggerating his, his conditions. They've torn my flesh. They've eaten up my flesh. You know, he had this very dramatic expression. And here he says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Acts chapter 2, verse 25. Peter, not even Paul. Peter says, David said concerning Jesus. Acts 2, 25. Are you here now? Yes, sir. David said 
David said concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he's at my quoting Psalm 16. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Keep going. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. This is verse 10. For you not leave my soul in Hades. Hades is the Greek word for Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for Hades. Place of the dead. Because the New Testament is written primarily in Greek, it changes from Sheol to Hades. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So Peter tells us that David was speaking of who? To further buttress Peter's point, Peter then says in the next verse, verse 28, You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Next verse. Men and brethren, Peter says, Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, who said his soul will not be left in Sheol. If he was talking about himself, well, he is both dead which means he is successfully in Sheol. Are you following me now? He's successfully in Sheol. And not only is he dead, he's buried. Not only is he buried, look at his burial ground there. That's what that meant. And his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, we can tell where David was buried. In other words, um, that you not leave my soul in show. Uh, it was not David. Are you getting it so far? Because if it was David, clearly he couldn't have been both dead, buried, and that's his tomb successfully. Make sense? So it says he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Next verse. Therefore, being a so David was a That's why I said, don't take my word for it. And say, Pap said. Therefore, being a prophet, what therefore was David doing in Psalm 16? Prophesying. And most times when you prophesy, you are besides yourself. Sometimes the prophet needs to be told what he or she prophesied. Most times you come out saying, I said that. Does that make sense? So he was a prophet. And look at what David prophesied. God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ. God had sworn to David that he would raise up from his offspring the Christ to sit on his throne. Next one. David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning what? Hold on. David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. David saw it. Yes, sir. Do you realize that majority of the gospel of grace that Paul is preaching, he borrowed it from David? Do you realize that David helped Paul understand grace? Why? Because David was a prophet. He saw Jesus, saw his burial, saw his resurrection. And then he said, Acts chapter 2, I think when verse 13, 21, that his soul was not left in 
Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So David spoke of Jesus. Are you here now? And you're saying now, ah, Papa, are you saying that? Are you saying that Paul saw grace from David? That's exactly what I said. Romans chapter 4. We we'll start from verse 1 for context. We'll go a few verses in. What then shall we say? This is Paul speaking, right? What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is Genesis 15, verse 6, I think. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 4. I love verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. It's not grace. It's, it's debt. We owe you. You worked 15 days a week. We owe you pro rata 15 days a week. To him who works, the wages are not counted as work. Him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Again, that's me and that's me. Yeah. That, to him who does not work, that's me. Believes on him, that's me. Who believes, I believes. Yeah. On him who justifies the ungodly, that was me. So, but to me, my faith is accounted for righteousness. This is Paul speaking. Where did Paul learn this from? This concept of being justified by grace through faith apart from works. Next verse. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Where did Paul learn it? Where did Paul see it? You think he sat in the wilderness of Arabia those seven years just praying in tongues. He was reading this same Old Testament. That's his use today. Grace. Paul learned grace. From the Old Testament. David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. David showed Paul. And then he now comes out and quotes Psalm 32. Quoting David. Paul is teaching grace through faith apart from works and he's quoting David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are, are. David is writing in, a, in an era where there was a high priest going into the tent of meeting, going into the most holy place with the blood of animals, paying for sin once a year. David, as king in that era, understood nobody's sin was forgiven in Israel. Um, except his. So imagine David looking from his house and looking at the high priest and saying, yeah. High priest. Doing a bull for himself. Then a lamb or a small goat for Israel. And David is like, no, 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 no. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and forget all his benefits. Who forgiveth iniquity? He didn't say who covers. In his day, the reality was the covering. For one year. But David saw beyond because he saw the Christ. He saw Christ. So he decided to enter the day before the day came. Why would you show me Christ coming a thousand and a thousand one hundred years later? 
and they want to now deal with me according to what is when you have shown me that better is coming. I refuse this now, now. I refuse it. I'm working with what you showed me. That was David's reality. I've seen the day in which the sin of the world is going to be forgiven. I understand it's far away, but my sin right now is forgiven. Deal with it, God. So instantly, David's reality is flipped. And it starts to write, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Next verse. Blessed is the man, David, to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And you are here arguing about whether or not yours has been dealt with. And David saw. David was at least a thousand and thirty years before Jesus. Nearly a thousand and hundred years. And he saw ahead that the, a time will come where the Lord will not impute sin, where sins are forgiven. And he believed and dragged it into his moment to become his reality. And Paul is studying the scriptures. And he's seen where David is ministering the grace of God. And Timothy as well had this understanding because Paul tells Timothy that from when I was a child, thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in. Are you here? Why did I say all this? We're in Luke 24. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's why I went on that journey to explain to you that prophets there as David and others. Yes, sir. <laughs> David would have been the major of these prophets. Yes, sir. Remember UTG, I began to show you series two. I began to show you multiple Psalms. Matthew's writing, John is writing as it is to fulfill what was written. And all of them are quoting David. Of course, there's Isaiah there, there's, there's Hosea there, there's Zechariah there, there's Haggai there, there's Micah there once or twice. But the bulk of Messianic prophecies are David. The bulk. So all slow hearts to believe all that the prophet had spoken. Ought not Christ to suffer these things. Next verse, 26. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? 27. And beginning... At Moses, which is to say, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning at these five books, the Pentateuch, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures. Somebody say in all the scriptures. The things concerning. So all the scriptures contain the things concerning himself. Mm -hmm. All the scriptures. Esther doesn't mention God once. Have you noticed? Book of Esther. Doesn't mention God even once. But hardly is there a more perfect picture of mediation for salvation than in Esther's narrative. You see, two, you see a law at force. A law of death. And a law that could not be reversed. So that law was perfect. Because that law was enacted with the signet ring, the signet ring of King Kahazaros. And that law says in the month of Adar on the 15th day or whatever of that month, I think on the 13th day, you will arm yourself and kill every Jew. 
wipe them from the face of the earth because they are a strange people, which is to say they are not a people. And clearly, there's no place in an established kingdom for a people that are not a people. So a law is enforced. Call it the first law. Call it the old covenant. It's perfect. A king ratified it, which means it's binding. You can't just get up and throw the law away. You have to fulfill it by enacting another law. And that law can only happen by another mediator. Haman mediated the first law. And Esther comes as a different mediator and mediates a better covenant. And by the time, by the time Haman and Esther finished with King Ahasuerus, he didn't repudiate the previous law. He didn't, in other words, he didn't say, that, oh, that law is cancelled because that law cannot be cancelled. Same thing applies to the law of, of sin and death. It wasn't just thrown away because it was valid. So we had to introduce another law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We had to introduce another covenant founded on better promises. Same thing with Esther. She goes to the king, makes her case, states her case, gets favor, stands in the gap for the people. And the king says, okay, another law. Valid on the same day. Same day. Arming every Jew for deliverance. Anybody comes at you, kill them. Take their lands, take their plunder, spoil them. By virtue of this new law of life, the first law was of death for the Jew. Second one was life for the Jew. By virtue of that law, many people, Babylonians, became Jews that day. You slept and woke up. You're speaking Persian. And they ask you, what's your name? I'm a Jew. What's wrong with you? Can't you hear my accent? I'm a Jew. Because the law of life had been passed. That usurped and therefore retired the law of death. Classic. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So that's why we say when you read the Old Testament and you don't see the Christ, read again. Are you here? So the Old Testament is a foundation for doctrine, hidden in plain sight. Hidden in plain sight. This includes a foreshadowing of realities and substances in their forms as types, shadows, and symbols. Hidden in plain sight, including foreshadowing of realities, substances, in their forms as types, shadows, and symbols. You see, you see leprosy at play as a very major symbol in the Old Testament. Right? You, you see water at play as a very major symbol in the Old Testament. You see ointment or oil at play as a symbol in the Old Testament. Right? You see fire play in the Old Testament. You see all of these things are symbols or types and shadows that foreshadowed or foretold of a reality that was to come. And now in the New Testament, we are in the revelation of doctrine. Old Testament, foundation of doctrine. New Testament, revelation of doctrine. Old Testament, foundation of doctrine, hidden in plain sight. It's there, you can't just see it, because till today, when Moses is read, a veil is over the eyes. Second Corinthians 3. So if, if a veil were not over your eyes, when you read Moses, who are you supposed to see as a result? Christ. If all you see is how to practice a law, you didn't see Christ. You read Moses and saw Moses, that's your problem. 
Moses wrote Moses and saw Christ. Left you struggling with Moses while he went on seeing and following Christ. Are you following? So the Old Testament is what? Foundation for doctrine. New Testament is what? Revelation of doctrine. Revealed, and this is important. I'm going to spend a few minutes on this one. Revealed with no more mysteries. The Old Testament foundation for doctrine hidden in plain sight, including tokens, symbols, types, and shadows that pointed towards a reality. New Testament is the revelation of doctrine with no more mysteries. In other words, the New Testament, hear me carefully, is the total demystification of the old. You're not saved into the new covenant to look for mysteries. The new covenant is the unveiling apocalypsis. The uncovering of every mystery that was hidden. To come into the new covenant is to arrive at the end of every mystery. So come into the new covenant is to arrive at the end. Telos. Hmm? Outcome, purpose, aim, perfection of. To come into the new covenant is to arrive at the end of every mystery. Every mysterious search finds fulfillment and unraveling in the new covenant. Listen to me, guys. You are not saved into the new covenant to search. You are saved to know what has been revealed. You are saved to know. Both ways, ginosko, epignosis. You are saved to come into the knowledge of what has been revealed. There's no hide and seek on this side of the cross. Am I preaching all this intergalactic? Hyper-celestial? Esoteric? Downright Gnostic? And we're calling them mysteries. Because you want to sound deep. You think, you know, you feel like it is an insult to come and teach what everybody else is teaching. That's what's driving this nonsense in the body of Christ. You get a small invitation to a conference. You feel like you must show them why you are a cut apart from the rest. And I've said and I've said over and over and over again, if we are teaching this gospel, we will all sound the same. And we will learn to be okay with it. I may have my own language, I may have my own expression, I have my own way of articulation, but we will say the same thing. Paul said, if somebody comes to you preaching another gospel, other than what you have received, let him be accursed. Is that even if he's angels? 
But we are so fueled by desire to sound deep and different. Let me show you a mystery. I tell you a mystery. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Took me. And you open yourself up to all kinds of stuff in the name of the Lord. And you totally do away with what Jesus came to do. Listen, by the time somebody is preaching to you and tells you that there are four ways to access the supernatural, the name of Jesus, the word of God, you should, you should already be troubled. If Jesus, if Jesus is one of four ways. So you can either use Jesus or use the word or use prayer. Or use keys and principles of the kingdom. Or any combination. Jesus said, I am the way. He showed us how to pray, but he didn't say prayer is the way. He promised that when the bridegroom is gone, we will fast. He didn't say fasting is the way. But he said they will not fast now because the bridegroom is here. When the bridegroom has gone, they will fast. But he never said fasting is the way. He never sang prayer is the key. He never sang it. He never sang it. And he never said it. How much more, Master Key? Excuse me, ma'am. Prayer is not the answer. It's not me that said it. Where are you promised that you will get whatever you ask when you pray? No. There's two conditions for prayer. Ask in his will, in his name according to his will. Just pray. Prayer is the key. The key to what? Oh, First Thessalonians 5. Pray without season. Colossians 4, I think 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make a request note. Nobody says you should not pray. But God is doing nothing because you pray. Listen to me. No human being changes the mind of God. The Old Testament in which you believe says in Numbers 23, he's not a man, verse 19, that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should. Has he said it and will he not do it? In Hebrews, I think in 13, says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today. So when you're praying, you are bringing yourself in alignment with his preordained will. Not trying to shift heaven to do something for you. Yourself, you're shifting into his will. You're shifting yourself to align with his will. So prayer is key to what? The New Testament is the revelation of doctrine. I've explained to you what doctrine is. Which is to say the unveiling of every mystery. There's no more mystery. Doctrine cannot be formed on the basis of subjective encounters. And so we must be careful in this dispensation. How you are chasing what everyone is chasing. That's why nobody's getting anywhere. Everyone's just sounding deep. Nobody's actually deep. I know people, I've counseled people who prayed for years to see an angel. Father, angelic visitation. Why? So that you can join the league 
of exclusive sons of God who have seen angels. So you two can come out on your ministry, praying, leading worship, preaching. I said, an angel. We're seeking mysteries. And sometimes I know people say to me, oh, Pav, just teach the gospel. We can't teach truth without sometimes eat that truth exposing the lie. We can't. Satan appeared to me in my dream. Listen, I'm not joking. Appeared to me in my dream and said, I need your help. I have a project I'm running in so and so country, and I need your help to fulfill it. Then the man of God says to Satan, You realize I'm sent to destroy that project? Satan says, yes, that's why I came to you, so we can negotiate. We don't have to fight. We can, we can negotiate and partner together. To do it. Now, that is okay. After all, you said your dream. So I'm okay with that. Until you say, there is a height that when you get to, Satan will appear to you to negotiate with you. At that point, at that point, you have turned your dream into what you'll obtain as a goal for the church to aspire towards. So now I wake up and I start to feel like I'm not effective in ministry because Satan has not yet appeared to me to negotiate with me. So now my goal shifts from pleasing the Father. My goal shifts from preaching the gospel. My goal shifts to becoming deep enough for Satan to appear to me so I can say, yes, I've also had that hallucination. And then you quote Luke chapter 4. Satan did not come to negotiate with Jesus. He came to tempt him. There's a difference. It's a difference. Say, bow to me and this is yours. Jump from here, he will catch you. It was temptation, straight up. No negotiation. You realize Satan needs no help from you doing his business. He's been doing his business before you showed up. And his business has been prospering long before you showed up. So we keep searching for mysteries. Romans 16, 25 and 26. The New Testament is a revelation of doctrine that retires and unveils every mystery. Romans 16, 25 and 26. Romans 16, 25 and 26. And don't give me that. It's the glory of a king to conceal a matter. It's the glory of sons to search it out. The son searched it out. No one, First Corinthians 2, no one knows the mind of a man except the spirit of that man which is in him. In the same way, no one knows the mind of God except the spirit of God that is in him. But we have received. Not the spirit of this world, but the spirit that is from God that we might know the things that have been freely Freely. Given to us. So why did you receive the spirit? Because if only spirit knows mind, and it means only your spirit knows your mind, 
only God's spirit knows his mind. It means for you to then know God's mind. What do you need? So once he gives you his spirit, what has he given you access to? What mystery then are you looking for? What mystery then are you looking for? When you have received the spirit of God, that you might know all the things that have been freely given to you by God. The secret things are revealed. Tell your neighbor, the secret things are revealed. Mm. Can I help you today? That you don't know them does not mean they are hidden. <laughs> it's like sitting down here and telling me now that cyber security or, or AI technology or, or robotics are a mystery because you don't know it. Do you know when you're writing, your exam, you're writing a project and you go online and you're looking for articles you can reference without, without plagiarizing and you don't know where to check? That same second, somebody's on that same internet accessing the same information you are struggling to access just because they know where to go. If this your Google is not working, there is a dark web that people that know, know. And they enter that dark web and what is there is not lawful for eyes to see. And it's on the same internet. With the same browser. The same browser. As some, you just punch a different combination of digits. And you're lost in a totally different metaverse. In the same internet that you know. So before you think, you, you know, you think that in, Google is internet intelligence. Google is crash, 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 crash. You still don't know anything about cookies. You, you, you're going online, you accept, accept, accept. After three weeks, you come on Facebook. Oh, my account was hacked. Are you not dumb? My account was hacked. You see, oh, look, look, what this lady do to this guy? You cannot believe it. You click. Some people can't fall prey to certain things because they have knowledge. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I go into a website and I and I see them asking for stuff. I see their I read their preferences. If I'm not comfortable with it. I leave the thing on there and I read the, the text behind it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, go and look for it on another page that doesn't need my 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 my, my details. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You just click accept, 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 accept. We look at your Facebook and there's 81, a list of 81 apps you have given access to your Facebook. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. 81 different apps have access to all your bio data. Because you give them access to your Facebook. Log in with Facebook, log in with Facebook. Log in with Google, log in with Google. And you just keep going, distributing your business across the internet. And there's people that harvest. Have you noticed that you... Go on Jumia and check something. Next time you come on the internet, you see that thing you searched in the corner. You didn't buy it. You didn't put your details. You just search for it. 
And next time they come online, they pack it in the corner. And they keep baiting you with it. How do they know? And you say, ah, ah, this is mysterious. No. Get us to be, it, it don't get us in be nothing. So the fact that you do not know it doesn't mean it's hidden. That's why I always correct the notion that revelation is progressive. No, 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 no. Revelation is not progressive, revelation is absolute. Re- Re- revelation is absolute. Christ is as revealed as he can be. The question is, how much of that revelation have you come into? So it is your coming into that revelation that is progressive. Not that God is showing himself to us small by small. Mm -mm. That you are learning small by small doesn't mean God is feeding it to you in bite-sized chunks. No, 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 no. no. No, It's available. Are you here today? It's available. God is withholding nothing from you. Romans 16. We've been trying to go there since. 25 and 26. There's no mysteries. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. Mm-hmm. But what? But what? But what? Go on. But now made manifest. We'll look at it again in, the, in another translation. And by the prophetic scriptures made no. to according to the of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you. But now as the prophets foretold and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere so that they too might obey him. So that doesn't sound like it's still hidden, does it? Kept secret from before the world, but now made manifest. Is that clear? Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The word of God is what? The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from both. Hidden, yes. From all ages, yes. From all generations, yes. But now. And we are the noun generation. Yes, sir. We are in uh, 26. The noun generation. The mystery which has been hidden from ages, but now has been revealed to his saints. Next verse. To them, God willed to make known. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is 
what was the mystery? Is it hidden or is it revealed? Now. To you. Next verse, 28. Him, that mystery, revealed. Him we preach, warning every man. And teaching everyone in all wisdom that we present every man perfect in Christ Jesus 29 and the last verse for this text. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Every time Paul calls a mystery, he considers that that mystery is revealed. Every time. Ephesians 1.9. Every time. Ephesians 1.9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. Having made known to us. Not having called us to search out mystery of his will. He has made known to us. We are not looking for God. God looked for us. We are not looking for God. He's revealed. He's revealed. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. Ephesians 3, 1 to 4. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, he says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation, hear this carefully, by revelation he made known to me the mystery. He made known. To me the mystery, as I've written briefly already, mm -hmm, which by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the of Christ. Made known. Colossians 2, 1 to 3. Made known. Colossians 2, 1 to 3. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, for those of you that did not know, Paul did not start the Colossian church. He heard about them. He was looking forward to meet them. Mm -hmm. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, next, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Which is to say both of the Father and of Christ, keep going, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom knowledge. What we are seeking for is hidden in him who is revealed in us. Therefore, they are not hidden from us. So the mysteries are revealed. The New Testament is a revelation of the doctrine with no more mystery. I said something key that you do not know it doesn't mean it's hidden. That you do not know it does not mean it is hidden. So, as always with the scriptures, the substance retires the shadows. Can we say that together? Everybody want to go? The substance retires. Say it again. That's important. Now, in Colossians 2, go further down and we'll look at from 
verse 16. 16 and to 23. Let's try it NLT. 16 to 23. Hmm. Hmm. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink. Somebody say amen. 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 Or for not celebrating certain holy days. Say amen. amen. Or new moon ceremonies. Amen. Or sabbats. Amen. Oh. To that I say, Amen. amen. Next verse. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial. Or insisting on the worship of angels. Saying that they have had their sinful minds have made them proud and please sin here is not fornication sin here is any act even a good one that is done outside faith for what Romans 14 for whatever is not of faith is sin what is faith in the Christ Believing. So, there are sinful minds here. We're not referring to minds that are sleeping around or minds that are... Minds that are perverse from the doctrine of Christ. Because it's only when your mind is perverse from the doctrine of Christ that you say, I saw an angel in a vision and he said everybody should lie down and worship him. Don't move. Don't move. There are angels here. That's angel worship. Sons of God should not move because servants of God are around. Eh? The boy boy walked in. Imagine your nanny or your housekeeper arriving your house at the gate and then somebody tells your son, stop moving. Stop moving. The nanny is arriving. Any nanny that a son runs from should be fired and jailed. You see your child being afraid when a nanny shows up. You don't beat your child. You are, you are senseless. Your child is probably being molested already. Probably being harassed already. You are thinking, oh, you respect your elders. You know, that, it, it, honestly, it does not apply in this case. A, a servant is a servant. A son is a son. You call your son and spank your son or shout at your son on behalf of the nanny, even if the son is wrong. You have empowered that nanny. Yes. You have empowered that housekeeper. You have empowered that girl from the village to lord it over your child in your absence. And you only see that child in maybe two waking hours of the day. Eight or ten out of those hours of every day, that child is in the charge of the nanny. If your child is running away from a nanny, there's a problem. If your child sees the housekeeper and starts to cry, there's a problem. The child sees the guy living with them in the house and starts to cower. There's a problem. Say, oh, go and greet uncle. Go and greet auntie. There's a problem. Call your child and say, talk to me. What's going on? But we don't run from servants. Servants, on the other hand, cower at sons. 
So any doctrine that props up an angel above his son is Antichrist. Devilish. Any doctrine. I said it. Any doctrine that props up an angel above his son is devilish. Devilish. Put that verse back up. 18. The sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ. I didn't say this. The head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments and it grows as God nourishes it. Keep going. 20. It gets even more interesting. You have died with Christ. Tell a neighbor you have died with Christ. The other neighbor, you have died with Christ. Then tell yourself you have died with Christ. And he has set me free from the spiritual powers of this world. Has. Has. So thou seekest deliverance. Thou canst not have. <laughs> because verily, verily, I say unto thee, thou hast received deliverance. After that, thou wast set free from the spiritual powers of this world. What other deliverance do you want God to give you? He has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world, but the ones in your village are not from this world, though they are from your village. Jesus did not calculate those ones. He's delivered us from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world such as, see what the rules of the world are. Hold up. So by, by the time a church setting is ministering to you with don't touch, don't handle, don't teach. Now, they think they are being spiritual, but scripture says they are being what? Worldly. Ouch. Go back to the verse 20, the end of verse 20. If you have been delivered from spiritual powers of this world, why do you keep on following the rules of the world? Stay here. TPT, verse 20. For you were included in the death of Christ. Hallelujah. And have died with him to the religious system and powers of this world. Don't retreat back to being bullied by the standards and opinions of religion. Let's name them. For example, they are such as or or Worldly. But this is what the church uses to define holiness. Your righteousness is not in how long your skirt is. Your skirt can be long and your fuse is short. Is it helpful for you to wear a decent skirt? Yes, so you can sit well and not expose your vital statistics. But is your skirt length girt and gathers? 
What we're using to measure your righteousness? Oh, no. Dressing. Dressing is a problem. Dressing is because we fail. Clot, clot, clot. Clot is because you fail in Genesis 3. Yes. So me, personally, I'm looking forward to being dressed in righteousness alone. we're sweating we are righteousness and sonship and as you start to sweat your dress becomes heavier so it's not in how long your skirt how short your skirt it's not in those things oh is decency important absolutely you are mostly addressed according to how you dress mm-hmm. but do I have a problem against you looking nice and hot no oh, look out <laughs> If you look so hard that your dog is barking at you, there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and you wear a shirt and you're, you know, you have been in the gym and then you have your two buttons loose. We can now see the 19 hair on your chest. All the hair are keeping minus with each other. How does that identify the shirt of Jesus? Button your shirt, my friend! You see, you think, oh, the lady, the ladies are showing their cleavage. What are you showing? So that we can see your inner abdomen from your chest. And then you'll be, be telling a girl, see, her, her neckline was so low. Plank is in your eye. Plank. Yes, 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 yes. That's what Jesus said. Plank is in your eye. Yes, you're looking at speck in a sister's eye. Yes, so it's, it's your, your, I mean, if you're walking into a, a, a job interview, you're not just going to look so, so ras. So yeah, you know, it doesn't matter. You know? It is what it is. I'm a son of God. You hear? We regret to inform you. <laughs> we wish you all the best in your future. Yes. And then you answer yours truly. There's nothing truly about it. So you, you are addressed according to how you dress. But does that have anything with salvation? No. Naked yourself, walk the street, let the dog bite you. you. Must be careful to not measure our righteousness by rules and regulations of the world. It's sad that that's what we're calling righteousness and holiness. We're a holiness church. It's not in those things. You can wrap blankets and come to church and your heart is dirty. 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 And you can look beautiful and amazing. And you're a son of God who knows who you are. Makeup. You bob your hair like this, bab pong, you're going to hell. All of you that are eating indomie. All of you wearing gyms. All of you watching football. Nothing survived in that era. Nothing. Earring, attachment, makeup, indomie, sardine. Yes, yes. You bob your hair a certain way, you're going to hell. Wear jeans, you're going to hell. Watch football, you're going to hell. Eating on me, you're going to hell. Watch cartoon, you're going to hell. And what does scripture call that? Wordliness. Don't taste, don't touch, don't handle, don't go there. Wordliness. Is anybody receiving instruction? 
The New Testament is a revelation of doctrine without mysteries. There are strict requirements. That's what they don't they don't play loud music. They're very holy. So oh, they are so holy. Those people meet them in their office. It's not in that. You can't touch that. You can't do that. You can't go there. You must do this and do the other. Next verse. These are doctrines of men and Why are you afraid? Read it. NLT. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate. Message. Do you think things that are here today and gone tomorrow are worth that kind of attention? Twenty-three in the last verse for this text. Such things sound impressive if said in a deep enough voice. This is one thousand nine hundred years ago. One thousand nine. So that trade didn't start today. Uh, they've been plying this trade for nearly two thousand years. If you said in a deep enough voice, if you said with commanding personality, the Lord said to me, I kid you not, I, I, I do not lie to you. No word of a lie. Brethren, I will not tell you what the Lord did not show me. People that start like that are about to manipulate you. Because they're already priming you to trust them, regardless of how it sounds. So I apologize for how this may sound. I apologize. He's about to tell you what he saw as an encounter. And he's telling you, I apologize for how this may sound. So they lead with a false humility. That make you trust them. And make them feel like, you know what? If not because necessity is laid upon them. They will not even be at, at liberty to share this deep thing to you. And then you find inside of you, a part of you subtly saying, no, now we trust you. Give it to us. Give it to us. You've taken the bait. You've taken the bait. Lord appeared to me in my hotel room and he said, Ooh, okay. Okay. This better be good. And it doesn't matter what it is because it's an authority that said it. Such things sound impressive when said in a deep enough voice. They even... Give the illusion. I just said that. But they're just another way of showing off. But we tell you what it is. At the risk of being disrespected. Mm. At the risk of being frustrated. At the risk of being trampled upon. At the risk of being disregarded and dishonored. If what we teach 
drives fear, we cannot manipulate you. You can only be manipulated by the weapon of fear. If you leave me, you won't come into what I've come into. If you don't follow me, you won't come into what I've come into. If you don't give to me, you won't come into what I've come into. So you're afraid of leaving. But the scriptures are very clear. The substance retired the shadows. God did not intend to, re- to lead us by rules and regulations. That's why every time I give one, my heart breaks. God didn't intend to lead us by rules and regulations. That's worldly. That's religious. That's kindergarten. That's basic. Are you here? The substance retired the shadows. The Old Testament is, therefore, valid, like I said, for understanding that it's the foundation of doctrine. And the New Testament is the revelation of doctrine. The Old Testament is also important for establishing what God wanted us to know is not his character. If all scripture is given by inspiration of God, if all scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction of righteousness that the man of God be thoroughly furnished, it means that every scripture has a purpose in establishing God's doctrine. So there's no scripture you just discard. If you are discarding it, it's because it does not reveal God's character. Which means the scripture is profitable. It wasn't unprofitable. It showed you how God is not. In the light of scriptures that show you how God is. That way you stop fighting scripture. In all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Then you come and attack Moses and say, throw Moses away. Well, you just said all scripture is profitable. What then is the profitability of a scripture you are canceling? Until you understand that scripture is also, especially the Old Testament, is given for you to understand what is not the character of God. In other words, not everything given in the Old Testament was given for you to replicate. Not everything done in the Old Testament was was recorded for you to do. In fact, a lot of things are recorded so you can know what was done and know that you should not do it. And right there is instruction in righteousness. Are you following me? For today, I'll give you only two examples. So those of you that love certain things, hopefully can think about it at least for a while, then you can repent at some point. If, if your repentance is not today. It might not be today because it might just be too much for you to, to handle. 2 Kings 1, 18. 2 Kings 1, from verse 1 actually, this is from verse 1, through to 18. I'll just skip. 2 Kings chapter 1. And you go, you see a brazen display of power. A, a goal for many men of God and children of God. Second Kings 1, verses 1 to 18. One of the most interesting stories of, in, the, in the Old Testament. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Yes. Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go, 
inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Akron, whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, I will deal with this sometime in the next two, three weeks. Because to end this series, I will take you through the contribution of angels in delivering the old covenant. They didn't give it, but they participated. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? Are you following so far? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? They said to him, A man came up to meet us, and he said to us, Go return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone, up, but you shall surely die. Then he said to them, that's the king, said to them, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? They answered him, A hairy man, wearing a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, Ah, there's <laughs> a trouble of Israel. <laughs> Elijah the Tishbite. So the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his men. 51 men. The captain plus his 50. So he went up to him. And there he was, Elijah, sitting on top of a hill. And he spoke to him, Man of God, the king has said, Come down. So Elijah said to the captain of 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And indeed, fire came down from heaven and consumed 51 men just because they said, man of God, come down. Then he sent him another captain of 50 with his 50 men. And he answered and said to him, man of God, thus has the king said, come down quickly. Elijah answered and said to him, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. He sent Pav with 50 men. The third captain went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said, Man of God, please, let... Will you not have sense by this point? You are seeing fire roasting men. Like Pierre. <laughs> Because the second one was foolish. Come down quickly, eh? <laughs> yeah, I got there. So 100, 102 skeletons. It's a man of God. Please, eh? Let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Keep going. Look. He's not informing Elijah what happened as if Elijah did not know. He said, look, fire has come down from heaven. And born these first two captains of 50s with their fifties. But let my life now. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Okay, go down with him and do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. 
Then he said to him, says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Because he had no son, Jeroham became king in his place. In the second year of Jeroham, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. That's the first story. Second Kings 2, 23 to 25. Elijah fire, right? Fire, 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 fire. God of Elijah, send down fire. God of Elijah, send down fire. Oh, God of Elijah, send down fire. God of Elijah, send down fire. God of Elijah, Second Kings 2, 23. If you clap, fire will come down. If I be a man of God. <laughs> okay, your life is precious in my sight. Be not afraid. So now, this is now Elijah mentored who? Direct mentorship, one to one. Elisha is coming up from there to better. He just collected mantle. And as he was going up the road, some youth, children, came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up. Indeed, he's going up. You bald head. Indeed. He has a bald head. If I call Danny and say, look at you, bald head. Why should Danny be offended if he has a bald head? By omission or commission. In other words, whether he inherited it or he bought it from the barber. And this guy snapped. Pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Because they called a man with anointing, bald head. And somebody will stand in pulpit somewhere around the world and preach this as the evidence of God's power. Now I said the Old Testament is also there to teach you referencing of what is not the character of God. John 6, I think 46. Jesus is speaking, right? He says, not that anyone has seen the Father. Except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Referring to himself. Right? But earlier on in John 1 and verse 18, John the Beloved, right? Not John the Baptist, John the Beloved is writing of Jesus. And John the Beloved says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So the declaration of God is based on the testimony of Jesus. The only begotten son has declared him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who caused light to shine in darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Has shown in our hearts to give the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face. So, Jesus Christ is how the glory of God is seen. Jesus Christ gives face to God. Jesus gives identity to God. Jesus gives visibility to God. This is important. Does that make sense? Now, he says, no one has seen the Father at any time. He who is at the begotten Son at the right hand of the Father has declared him. This is Jesus he's talking about. Now, Jesus himself, speaking in Luke 9, 
in verse 51. Jesus gives clarity to the character of God. Jesus, not Elijah. God is not as defined by Elijah. Are you hearing me? God is not as defined by Elisha. God is not even as defined in many parts by David. Mm. God is not in many parts as defined by Job. What's off by Job's friends? They don't know God. Those three guys. God is not as defined by Job's wife. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received of that he said, Pharisees set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. 53. But they, I've explained this in the Savior doesn't need saving. Remember this? Yes, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. He's one of them people that, that think that Jerusalem is a better place to worship that's Samaria. So why? What are you doing now? City, keep going. Does that make sense? Because his face was set for Jerusalem. They, they thought he was going there to worship, not knowing that he was going there on his assignment. So James and John got upset. James and John were with Jesus, but because they had read the Old Testament, they were mentored by Elijah. As far as the miraculous was concerned. Elijah was their mentor because John the Baptist, who they had served earlier, didn't do any miracles. Are you following me now? John didn't do any miracles. So they had a very boring time. Just being with John, dipping people in water, bringing them out, dipping people in water. Come on, man. So they had another manual they followed for the miraculous. And so they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire? To come down from heaven and consume them. Now, at this point, is a fantastic opportunity for Jesus to establish the character of God. Jesus' response becomes prescriptive, not just descriptive. In other words, Jesus' response doesn't just explain what Jesus did. Jesus' response establishes what we must do. So his response is both descriptive, it tells us what happened, but it's also prescriptive, it tells us what we must do in the same shoes. And here is what Jesus does in defense of the Father's character. He turned around 55 and rebukes them. So anybody calling fire down now to consume enemies of God deserve what? Rebuke! Jesus said, not Pav. I'll give you your Bible. What did that earn them? A rebuke. Not a compliment. And Jesus rebuked them and said to them, Oh, come. You do not even know what manner of spirit you are of. Which means 
The manner of spirit you are of is not the manner that calls down fire from heaven to consume people because they offended God. And even today, anybody who pitches themselves to fight a fight of God deserves nothing more than a rebuke. Anybody. Anybody. Is it you that offended? It's God. And God has determined how to respond to that offense. But no, if you leave God, He will not do it the way you like. Because what you do, what you like is not let nothing be. You remember the story of those two women? They agreed there was famine in the land in the time of Solomon, and they agreed, okay, there's nothing to eat. Let's kill your child and eat. Tomorrow we'll kill my child and eat. And they killed the woman's first, the other woman's child, ate the woman's child. And then by the next day, they said, bring your child, let's eat. It wasn't even that one, it was another one. This one was the one whose mother died, whose child died. There were two stories. So the one whose child died, and then he exchanged the children, and then brought them before the king, and the king said, that's not, the woman said, that's not my child. My child is alive. That one is dead. And the other one who had lost her child was adamant that the, li- the living child was hers because if my child is dead, then yours can't be alive. If I'm not getting it, nobody's going to get it. Destroy it! Let's all lose. Mm. Tear down. But we'll get anything. Solomon said, bring me a knife. A sword. They brought a sword. Solomon said, cut the baby into two. Give half to this woman. Since they can't make up their minds who actually owns the baby. Divide the child in two. Give half to this woman. Give half to the other woman. And the one whose child was dead screamed, Yes! That's good. Fantastic. Divide it. Everybody should get anything. First Kings 3. 16. We're probably in 17 now. 17. Oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house and gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I gave birth, and this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was us in the house except of us in the house. Yeah? Woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She rolled over. She arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child on my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus he spoke before the king. And the king said, this one says, it's my son who lives and your son is the dead one. And the other one says, no, but your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. The king said, bring me a sword. So they brought the sword before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two. Give half to one, half to another. Of course, that means that the child will die. Next verse. The woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. 
regardless of who will end up being the child's mother. She said, oh my Lord, no, 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 give her the child. By no means, kill him. But the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. It is that today. There's nothing new under the sun. Nobody will get this thing. The life of the child doesn't matter. Divide it. My child is dead. So, so come on. My child is dead. Every child should die. Why do you have a right to a child when I don't have one? Why do you have a right to admission when I don't have one? Why do you have a right to a husband and a man when I don't have one? Why do you have a right to, an, to a job when I don't have one? Why do you have a right to travel abroad when I don't have one? Divide it. Everybody knows. Divide it. But the one who actually had compassion protected it even if it meant it was not going to end up with her anymore. That's love. That's where love is. I've always said over and over, you don't love someone until you are happy to lose it and not fight. Please, when people are talking about love, shut up. Be quiet. You don't know love until you love enough to let it go. God didn't love the world and kept his only son. God loved the world and gave his only son. You know love by how much you are willing to lose without kicking a force. Mm-hmm. It hurt like hell. But you love enough to let go and rejoice in the prosperity of that person. Well, one of us in the kingdom is settled. God be praised. One of us in the kingdom has a car. God be praised. One of us in the kingdom has a, has a house. God be praised. One of us, if he did it for you, ah, he gonna do it for me. And so when somebody gets a car, don't do the Nigerian thing and say, let's wash it. Buy the first petrol in the car. What's wrong with you? Why are you so poor in your thinking? Why are you so selfish in your paradigm? Buy the car. Put your mark on it. And let's wash it. Wash it by putting petrol in it. Buy the first air freshener and stick in it. It's somebody's birthday and you want to celebrate them. Sow into them. Don't pour water on them. Why should we be running away from you on our birthday? That's witchcraft that you practice. Witchcraft. You are a witch. And we humiliate you on your birth anniversary. Pour dirty water on you. And, say, and we, we say evil things like, today is the only day we get the chance to do it. That means you had 364 days of evil in your mind. That's what it means. That's what it means. It means you wish for 364 days that a day will come where you can slap that person. You can pour water on them. You can spit on them. You can, you can tear their cloth. I know that that's the only day, only day you can get away with it. Once it's in your heart, the day you get the chance to do it five times a day, you'll do it. Because you have harbored it as a thought. Love gives, doesn't take. Love gives, 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 and gives again. The woman screamed, oh please, no. Why should the child die? As long as it means the child gets to live and have a life. I don't, I don't, I don't. 
I don't mind who the mother is. Just give it to her. And the other one said, no! Divide the child. The king answered, give the first woman the living child. By no means killing, she's his mother. I've said this over and over for years. The wrong decision God kept you from making or caused you to repent from making will always justify the right decision you made. Always. Always. If the lady you walked away from was the one for you, she will not fight you. She will count her blessings, cut her losses, and keep trusting God. She will say, let him have the child. It's okay. As long as somebody settled. If the one you walked away from fought you, that's God showing you that you chose right. Oh, yes. A guy is in love with you, takes you to Alice, buys you ice cream. You finish from Alice, he takes you to Cold Stone. Buys you ice cream. On your way down, he stops by Domino's. Buys you the new Suya pizza. You finish from there as you came out. As you just came out of, of, of Domino's. You just saw, ah, ah, see, Chicken Republic is new now. You enter there. You bought chicken and a smoothie. And then you go to spa. And he takes you into one of them shops. And he buys you stuff. And he drops you at home. You're going to church. He doesn't go to your church. But he calls a boat for you in his name from his app. They pick you up. And then all of a sudden you realize that you're not, maybe you got into the relationship without seeking the face of the Lord, or you realize that you're not on the same page spiritually, and you said to him, I am sorry, but it doesn't look like this is going to work. The same guy shows up in your house and slaps you, handles you, snatches your phone, and puts post photos of you and videos of you on Instagram. Hear me, God just delivered you from a witch. It doesn't matter how much he comes and begs. Oh, but he says he loves me. You Now, now you are the, becoming the witch. It's clear witchcraft has infected you. Mm. 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 Every time he will come and say, oh, I don't know what came over me. He will kill you and say he doesn't know. You have two days to return everything I ever gave you. Pray for the mercy of God. That's not love. It's obsession. Animalistic, evil, dark obsession. You not return it. I will come and... Hey, that's not love. For God so loved that he gave. Not that he took. He gave his life. He didn't took your life. (laughs) Gave his life. He didn't need to take yours. So those of you that are so vindictive, so angry, you have not known love. So I don't bother to talk. No, no, no. You're so angry, you're so upset. But the king said, no, no, no. That one, that one. That's the mother. Only a mother will talk like that. Okay. A child. And that established his wisdom in all of Israel. So nobody's going to get it. 
is not the character of God. Sprinkle any scripture you like on it. It's not the character of God. Nobody will succeed. It's not the character of God. Look at the way they are growing. Let's fight them. Why you, it's not the character of God. Why? It doesn't help you grow. Because anybody who is serious will not turn to darkness because they left light. They will look for light somewhere else. And they will know that you are not light. Light doesn't do dark things. Because people that are discerning will not leave light and follow darkness because a setup of light failed. That a setup might fail doesn't mean the people of light will fail. So it's important to understand the character of God clearly. Clearly. We start to pray certain prayers. Father, destroy them. Frustrate them. They come in one way. Let them, you know that prayer of David? Let them flee seven ways. And so scripture is there for you to understand what is not the character of God. So we get to Jesus. And he says, you, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The manner of spirit you are of is not the spirit that calls fire from heaven. It's not the manner that divides a living baby into two because she has died. It's not the kind that destroys people because you receive small anointing. So 42 people should die because you are angry that Elijah was taken from you. Because you know what that, that nonsense that Elisha did? He did it in mourning. He did it in a moment, a low moment. Elijah didn't want Elisha did not want Elijah to be taken from him. He didn't. That was the same thing that drove Peter to chop off the chief priest servant's ear. Yes, sir. Prophecy was clear. From that moment on, scripture says. Jesus began to tell his disciples the things that must happen to him, how that he would die, be buried, and how on the third day he would resurrect. It was not strange to the disciples. They just did not want to hear. Remember Peter called Jesus aside. Say, come young man. <laughs> come let me advise you. Yeah, it's like this 32 years old of yours. Not, it's not, not thinking straight. Don't be talking things like that. You are in the prime of your ministry. And then you promised us that in this life we will reap hundredfold what we gave up to follow you. You are not talking of dying. So don't talk like that. <laughs> so when it began to happen, Peter knew, but didn't want to knew. Took a knife and before you could say, Pete, boom. It was off. Jesus. When you go back, read the story. Jesus asked the soldiers that came with weapons, the Bible says. They came with torches, fire, fire torches, and weapons. That's what the Bible says. And they came to Jesus in the garden. Jesus asked them, Who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, 
I am he. They fell down. Shebi, if you were that captain that went with Elisha, you went to arrest somebody, he introduced himself, power fell you down. Shebi, you will not get up and say, may my life be precious. (laughs) No? Sir, may my life be precious. When they gave me the assignment, they didn't explain to me that this was how it was going to be. And you go away and tell your other side, if you want to arrest him, go arrest him by yourself. They fell down. Then they got, Jesus waited for them to recover. They recovered and stood up. Jesus asked them again, Who are you seeking? I said, I, I already told you, I am He. Yeah, gone. Peter was like, No, 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 this is not happening. And Jesus takes the ear. And sets it back in place. And heals the person arresting him to kill. And the person testified. My ear is good again. Thank you Jesus. You are under arrest. We have unfinished business. That's what happened. And Jesus let them take him. So he told them, no one is taking my life from me. Since I have the power to put it down. I have the power to lift it up. On the cross, he says, do you think I cannot call? Even in the garden, he tells Peter, do you think I cannot call my father? And he will send 12 legions of angels. One legion is between four. French legion is 6,000. British legion is 4,000. So approximately 5,000, one legion. French wartime Legion is 6,000. Peacetime Legion, 4,000. So somewhere in between 5,000. It was one, for context, it was one angel that took all of Israel out of Egypt. One. Jesus told Peter, I can call 72,000 of those. Now. And they would come. That's the first thing. Second thing Jesus insinuated was that if I call for those angels now, God will send them. He says, do you not think I could call my father and he will send? So if, God, if Jesus had given up on that instant, God would have backed it. And he heals his ear. Here's where I'm going about the character of God as defined and prescribed by Jesus. Verse 56. Look at what Jesus prescribed about his character and that of the Father. He says, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And instead of raise the village down because the village will not entertain them. Instead of destroy the village because the village refused them. Instead of judge the village because the village did not honor them. Instead of annihilate the village because the village did not receive them the way that Jesus thought he should have been received. He simply left the son of God. God, the son of man. Just left and went to another Samaritan village. 
excuse me, is it plausible to argue that Jesus did not have power to call down fire? You can't say that. In fact, Jesus is so lifted that the calling down fire business, James and John had it covered. Do you understand? Jesus did not need to even get involved. James and John were certain. You never know if they called on fire and a lizard in their backyard before when they were kids growing up. You never could tell. But they sounded definitely like they were, they were absolutely positive they could call down fire to destroy this village. Now, Elijah, Elijah's fire took out 102 men. These two men were sure their fire could take out a whole village. That was a lot of fire that they thought they could call. It means that kind of fire would have made a joke out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus did what to people that resisted him? Rebuked the people that tried to destroy them. And established again his modus operandi. I did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That means, when you read the Old Testament, and you see this wanton destruction of lives, you have to conclude it is not the character of God. Did men die? Oh, yes. Go back to UTG series 2. The righteousness of the gospel. The absence of God's grace is the presence of his wrath. And his wrath is righteous. That people died on account of his wrath doesn't mean that God killed them. I told you a few weeks ago, the, the flood did not come to destroy. The flood came to save. Only eight people believed. So only eight were saved. It's not the flood's fault that only a few people believed. It's not the flood's fault. It's not God's fault. Noah preached this gospel for 120 years. Three generations. The flood just didn't fall from the sky. 120 years, Noah was preaching the gospel. Because Peter calls him, Second Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. He didn't just fall from the sky. So the flood came to save. Only eight believed. God gave the dimensions of the ark according to the eight he knew would believe. Saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. So the flood came upon the world of the ungodly. So he didn't come to destroy the world. He came to save the remnant, which is what he always does. So when we look at the Old Testament, we're seeing references to the character of God and references to what is not the character of God. Are you following me now? Long time ago, I told you that these guys had such unbridled access to power that they could, by the power of God, do things that were not necessarily a reflection of God's yes, grace. Yes, 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 they could. Because the danger of saying Elijah did not to pray by the power of God is to insinuate that he operated at the point by Satan's power, yes, which would discredit him as a prophet yes, and create major problems for the faith. Yes, 
So we're learning the character of God from the Old Testament. And so when you see and look at Jesus, it is clear how he's the identity of God. So when you read the Old Testament, it's not everything that applies to you. Oh, there's good meat to glean. But what you can glean is only what passes the integrity test of the character of God as revealed in Christ. What is applicable in the OT is what passes the integrity test of the character of God as revealed in Christ. So you can't come and pray David's prayer. Arise, O God. Let my enemies be scattered. Let them flee before you like chaff before the wind. Let them melt before you like wax before the fire. God right now has two enemies. One is defeated. The other is spoiled. When we got, get our uh, incorruptible bodies, that last one is finally defeated. God has no enemies in your village. The coven of witches are not enemies of God. They are servants of God. It's religion that has painted to you that they are God's enemies. God has used witches to drive his agenda. It's in the Bible. I showed you the other day. Oh, yes. So God is not at war with the Satan. They know their place of respect. So the Old Testament focused on the people with glimpses into the person of Christ. The Old Testament focused on the people, 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 people. With glimpses into the person of Christ. The New Testament focuses on the person with glimpses into the people. So I've explained to you before in the New Testament, to see us, we must see him. I said to you, if you're looking for yourself so much in scripture, you might not find yourself so much in the New Testament. But when you see him, you see yourself in him. So the New Testament is loud on him. Because when you see him, you know you. As I see you, I know me. As I see you, I will be. That's why it tells us to look unto Jesus. Are you here? The Old Testament amplifies the outcome of his righteous wrath in a world without his righteousness. The Old Testament amplifies the outcome of his righteous wrath in a world without his righteousness. The New Testament amplifies the outcome of his gracious love in a church without his wrath. The Old Testament amplifies the outcome of his righteous wrath in a world without his righteousness. The New Testament amplifies the outcome of his gracious love in a church without his wrath. And you need to see both to find that reference. The Old Testament amplifies his, the outcome of his righteous wrath in a world without or apart from his righteousness. The New Testament amplifies his gracious love in a church without his wrath. Because the hope we have now is that we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
the believer will not encounter the wrath of God. Never. Never. What does his wrath look like? That's why you have the Old Testament. Not to see what you should fear, but what grace has delivered you from. Does that make sense? Becomes your reference point. So you see what the amplifies, and you see what the Lord by the cross saved you from. You will always say the works of the Lord works until you go and read the law. You will not understand what you were delivered from. So it's there for you to also know what you were delivered from. What you would have been struggling with had Jesus not died for you. Are you here? Okay, second to the last. The Old Testament prophesied of the coming Savior. The New Testament showcases that the Savior has come and the Savior is coming. So when you read the Old Testament, you see it splattered with prophecies of the coming of Jesus to save his people from their sins. The New Testament, we are beneficiaries of that prophecy. So when we read that, we must be careful what we are applying in church as believers. We must be careful that we are not making into future what is already our present, simply because when you read it in the Old Testament, it was future. Because the reason why a lot of us are praying and seeking the face of God and looking for God and praying prayers like the Bible says in Jeremiah, you shall find me after you have sought me with all your heart. We're not there anymore. We're not there anymore. The dispensations changed. He came, he came to seek and save. The seeking was done by him when the time was right. In due time, he came, born of a man, born of a woman, born according to the law, that he might redeem. In due time. When he was, why were we looking for him? Because he wasn't going to be found until due time. A few people search with all their heart, namely David, namely Abraham, namely Moses, namely a handful of people that tested grace in the law. Does that make sense? People that refused to believe that their reality was all there was to their reality and sought a city whose builder and founder was God. That would be the category of people who sought and found because they sought with all their heart. When the fullness of time came, we didn't need to seek. He came to seek and save and we are beneficiaries and recipients. So you can't pray David's prayer. Early in the morning will I seek you. My soul is longing for you. For your loving kindness is better than light. He dwells in you. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise. He is inside you. He's never going to leave you. That was a boast that David did not have. So you can't stand here and trying to be pious and ascetic. Remember that scripture? And thinking that you are being holy by singing, cast me not away, you are being foolish. Cast me not away from your presence. Even in that same Old Testament, he said, I have indelibly tattooed you on the palm of my hands. In that same Old Testament, 
he said, can a mother forget her suckling child? Then he says, yes, there are instances in which she may. And should that happen, let that not be the litmus test for you to think, I'm going to forsake you. My father who gives them to me is greater than all. Nothing can snatch them out of my father's hand. I'm convinced that neither life, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things past, nor things present, nor things to come, nor with, nor perils, nor famine, nor darkness, nor persecution, nor sword can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that does not sound like a guarantee, you will never get one. If that doesn't sound like a guarantee, you'll never get anything else. So, cast me not away from their presence. What will I do if you leave me? He has said he's not leaving you. So what are you looking for? Experimenting or exploring on the other side of him leaving you? There's no potential for him leaving you. So careful what you apply to yourself in the Old Testament. It must pass the integrity test of the character of God as revealed in Christ. Are you here? I'll, 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 I'll pick this up next week because it must also form Christ in you. The Old Testament you must apply. Any part of the Old Testament you must apply. Must form Christ in you. After all, it was from that Old Testament they preached Christ. So you can't read the Old Testament and arrive at anything else other than the culture of Christ. So if the application of any Old Testament scripture would be contrary to the character of God in Christ, you don't need it. This is important because when you start to handle your Bible, there's clarity. Clarity of what to pray. Clarity of what to apply to yourself. Clarity of how to see God in, in Christ and how that is effective in your life. Paul is praying and he doesn't pray, scatter my enemies. He prays that we might deliver from wicked and unreasonable men. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 2. God does not have to kill your enemy to protect you. He does not. He does not. David himself, because one minute is in himself, one minute is beside himself. Because it's the same David that says, let thy wake be dark and sleep is scattered. It's the same David that says, thou prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So if he scatters all your enemies and kills them, then which enemies will he prepare a table before you in the presence of? Second Thessalonians 3, 2. Have you learned anything today? Yes, sir. Start from verse 1. Paul says to the church to pray. Finally, brethren, he says, pray for us. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Verse 2. And that we may pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men because not all have faith. Not all have faith. See verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. What does he do? And without necessarily having to destroy the evil one. NLT. Verse 3. He will guard you. He will establish you. He will hide you from the evil one. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. TPT, your modern translation or, or, or the message. Verse 3. But the Lord Yahweh is always faithful to place you on a firm foundation and so even Jesus said the prince of this world comes and finds nothing in me. But he comes. 
as I says, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. That means weapons will be formed. Jesus does not promise the stopping of the weapon being formed. He says they will not prosper. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Come, let us cast their yokes off of us. But the Lord who sits in heaven shall laugh and speak up to them into his court of pleasure. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. That is consistent with the character of Christ. And therefore, that psalm, I love it. The Lord is my refuge and strength. And my ever-present help. In the time of trouble. Therefore we will not fear. We will not fear though the earth give way. Though the mountains be cast into a sea. There is a river whose streams make glad. The city of God. God. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. That is consistent with the promise. That he will keep us and guard us from the evil one. Therefore in the integrity test of handling the Old Testament. Pass. Are you understanding this now? Because it's consistent with what God what revealed in the New Testament has given to you. It's consistent. It's consistent. Whatever is not consistent, mm, doesn't apply to you. But it shows you how it doesn't apply to you. So I said to you last week, I didn't get there this week, I'll continue next week when I said to you that it teaches you how to learn and teaches you what to not learn. You will learn and you will learn what to not learn. You learn habits to not pick. And you will learn habits to pick. Prayer in the New Testament is different from prayer in the Old Testament. But an example in the Old Testament is valid for prayer in the New Testament. The effectual foreign pride righteous man make a tremendous power available dynamic in his walking. Elijah was a man of like passion. He prayed. So right there in James chapter 5, we see an Old Testament example of a praying man and what prayer did in aligning him to the will of God. So while we are praying for different things or from different standpoints, there's an example of what fervent prayer can look like. So when somebody says to you, oh, you, 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 cannot, pray loud, you cannot pray out loud, you cannot pray with groaning, Elijah was a man of like passion. Does that make sense? So if, if, if we have a New Testament, in the New Testament, an example of Elijah as a fervently praying man, then when we're praying, I will praise that fervently because we have been referenced an example. That's how you apply the Old Testament. Have you learned anything? For the revelation of doctrine in the light of Christ, give God praise and glory. Well, that's it for today's teaching. We trust it has been worth your time. For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the Truth Simply Put or at WarTheChurch. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.